Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Putting his assets on the line as Donald Trump's fraud trial begins, a columnist tells us that this time the former president's lies about his business dealings might actually come at a cost. Crown Privilege, the head of an organization founded by murdered Saudi dissident Jamal Khashoggi, says five years after his murder, the West is more interested in economic ties with Saudi Arabia than in justice for her friend. A deadly nature hike, a couple and their dog are dead after a rare attack by a grizzly bear in Banff National Park. I'll speak with a bear expert who is also a friend of the family. Double Take, a scientist tells us about strange objects that seem to be traveling in pairs a thousand light years from Earth which he says may change our understanding of the way stars and planets come to be. Divine Comedy. Years ago, a Spanish woman's botched attempt, you may remember it, to restore a fresco drew international mockery, but a new comic opera refuses to smear the artist behind what's become known as the Monkey Christ. And a step-by-step guide to being faster. If you've struggled to get to the finish line more quickly, try strapping on a new high-tech exosuit which will apparently help at least in the short run. As it happens, the Monday edition, radio that's given you the idea, now run with it. Donald Trump was in court again today, this time facing a lawsuit accusing him of inflating his riches by billions. The judge in the case has already ruled that the former president committed fraud in his business dealings. Now a trial will decide further claims in the suit. At stake for Mr. Trump, the possibility of tens of millions of dollars in penalties and a ban on doing business in New York. Here's New York Attorney General Letitia James on her way into the courthouse. My message is simple. No matter how powerful you are, no matter how much money you think you may have, no one is above the law. And it is my responsibility and my duty and my job to enforce it. The law is both powerful and fragile. And today in court, we will prove our case. Donald Trump also spoke to reporters on his way into the trial. This is a continuation of the single greatest witch hunt of all time. We have a rogue judge who rules that properties are worth a tiny fraction, one one hundred, a tiny fraction of what they actually are. We have a racist attorney general who's a horror show who ran on the basis that she was going to get Trump before she even knew anything about me. She used this to run for governor. She failed in her attempt to run for governor. She had virtually no polling. She came back and she said, well, now I'll go back to get Trump again. And this is what we have. It's a scam. It's a sham. 
Timothy O'Brien is the executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being Donald. We reached him in New York. Tim, how would you describe this trial? Well, you just heard two very different mm-hmm. views of the world, Neil. In, in, in New York State Attorney General Tish Shane's worldview, she's enforcing the law, and the rule of law matters in a very perilous time in the United States where I think democracy and institutions are under attack. Donald Trump sees himself as a permanent victim. So I think in times like this, it's useful to return to the fact pattern. And, and the reality is that Donald Trump has, in fact, been inflating the value of his assets for decades. That's not a surprise to anyone who's watched him closely. I think the issue at stake here is, is whether or not he defrauded banks along the way by inflating the value of what he had. Did he get loans? In this case, he shouldn't have gotten by inflating the value of his assets. The judge in this particular case already ruled that there's enough evidence to demonstrate that, in fact, Donald Trump did act fraudulently. So the trial that's underway right now is really about assessing the damages. It's no longer about finding out mm-hmm. whether or not he committed a fraud. So it's a very existential moment. I think that Trump feels that, that the result is already baked in. So he's got nothing to lose by going on the attack. But in fact, he does. You know, he. Well, let me just ask you, yeah, yeah, because ahead, Donald Trump sued you years ago for writing in your book that he had done this very thing, that he had exaggerated what he was worth. He lost that case. So this this existential battle that you talk about, this idea that he would be really evicted from the world of New York real estate, what would that mean to Donald Trump? Well, it, it, you know, it, it, it is where his family's business was built. He inherited um, his wealth and a lot of his, the foundation of his own business from his father, who built it from scratch in the greater New York metropolitan area. It's reputational damage. He has o- always measured himself against other New York developers. He considers it the cream of the crop. Um, and then in very practical terms, a substantial amount of, of his wealth is tied up in a small handful of buildings that are located here in New York. And if he's going to be forced to sell those buildings, he's going to have to sell them at fire sale prices because all the buyers know he needs to get rid of them. So he's going to suffer financial pain from that. And then he won't be able to operate in the state again. So it's, it's multiple blows around his family's legacy and his own viability as a, as a businessman. The Trump camp, the legal team, have already been saying that this is standard practice in real estate, that there's different ways to value properties, that that no one actually lost money, people made money, there's no victim here. How important are those arguments in this trial? How much sway will they have, do you think? Well, Neil, they'll have sway over the kind of damages that the judge ultimately imposes uh, financially and practically on Trump. It's also very true that there is a certain amount of leeway around how things are valued because properties can be, you know, subjectively valued by one person more than another by buyers. But by and large, every real estate developer in New York knows that they're not as wildly different as Trump has always claimed them to be. He's added, you know, billions and billions to his wealth that simply isn't there because he says he believes it there. When, in fact, you can measure the value of a property by looking at the value of surrounding properties. You can measure it by the value of the land. You can measure it by other physical attributes of the building itself, including the square footage. And when you incorporate those kind of measures into an analysis of what Donald Trump has, the, the value of his assets deflate like a, like a balloon losing air. We know the Trump children are set to testify, but you wrote today that you're interested in one banker in particular. Why are you so interested in what she might have to say? 
Well, I think Rosemary Vrablick, who is on both the prosecution's witness list and the defense's, is an interesting witness because she was his banker at Deutsche Bank, which was one of his main lenders. Most big U.S. banks had stopped lending to Donald Trump long ago because he was a serial bankruptcy artist, and they lost faith in both his bona fides as a developer and his honesty. Deutsche Bank chose to do business with him anyway, and they loaned him money right up until he ran for president in, in 2016. And I think the defense wants to ask her, you knew exactly what he was saying to you when he showed you his the value of his assets. He never fooled you, correct? And they're hoping she'll say say yes to that, and they must be optimistic that she will. The prosecution, I think, is going to ask her, as their witness, did he dupe you, and don't you feel he played you in order to get loans from Deutsche Bank? And I think they're hoping that her answer to that will also be yes. And you can't have both of those yeses in the same courtroom and get the same result. So there's going to be some interesting tension there because she represents, I think, the tension at the heart of this case and the tension reflected in in the sound clips you played at the beginning of the show. The tension I've been reading about, I'm not there, obviously, in the courtroom is quite something as well, not just the comments outside. But, you know, the Washington Post, one of the reporters was describing that Donald Trump was essentially hovering over Letitia James, you know, trying to assert power in in this in this situation. Well, he's, he's in a desperate situation because he has he has very little power at this moment. He has already been found guilty by by the judge of fraud. And he's attacking the judge. The, the attorney general, Tish James, has already found uh, a pattern of, of, of reckless disregard for the truth and for the valuation of his own properties. There's very little he can do to controvert that. So I think right now for him, it's entirely performative. And I think what you're seeing in the New York courtroom is this transformation of Donald Trump from someone who spent most of his 77 years creating a myth around himself as a, as a peerless business person essentially being willing to let go of all of that as he transforms into this cultish political leader whose relationship with his audience now is entirely political. And he's not worried about the impact that that business misdeeds might have on, on that population of people. Tim, good to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Neil. Timothy O'Brien is the author of Trump Nation, The Art of Being Donald. He's in New York. This weekend, a couple went camping in Banff National Park, but the weekend had barely begun when they were attacked and killed by a grizzly bear, which also killed their dog. On Friday evening, a Parks Canada crew received an alert from a GPS. They couldn't helicopter in because of bad weather. It took them five hours to get to the site. There, they discovered the bodies and an aggressive grizzly, which they had to kill. Kim Titchener is a bear safety expert. She also knows the couple's family. We reached her in Edmonton, Alberta. Kim, what can you tell us about the couple who was killed in this attack? Uh, I got a call on Saturday afternoon from a friend of mine, and uh, unfortunately it was a family of member of hers that uh, was killed in a bear attack. Uh, I, I did not know the couple, mm-hmm. but um, I, I, I know that uh, they were you know, very experienced at the outdoors, and anyone that heads into that kind of area of backcountry you know, is going to know know a lot about what they're doing if they're heading out there. Yeah. Given that experience, what do you think happened? You know, I really am cautious to speculate mm-hmm. at this point because there's a real lack of information at this time. And, and something, you know, that I always want to counsel when, you know, we're, we're, we're talking with families or victims 
um, or those left behind is, is it's really important to get that information out one time. Here's what happened. Mm-hmm. And, and, and instead of speculating, because it's just, it's torture for the family, really, uh, at this point. That there's so many questions, uh, very little answers. Uh, and, you know, we, we will know in the coming days as, you know, they, they get through things like the necropsy of the bear, um, which they have, and uh, the forensics of what happened there and, and, and the people involved. Given that the bear was still there when Parks mm-hmm. Canada staff arrived and that they say it was behaving aggressively towards them, what does that tell you? It's unusual. Uh, you know, a lot of the time when uh, wildlife attack teams go in uh, after a bear attack, there's been an attack, they get, they, when they arrive on scene, usually the bear is not there. Uh, there have been a few cases where, uh, of course, you know, a bear has been around. Uh, I know back in 2007, a friend of mine was attacked by a predatory black bear uh, in the town mountain area of Banff National Park, and the bear was on scene still when they arrived. And of course, this was pretty quickly afterwards. So, uh, but you know, in this case, we're talking about, you know, the middle of the night uh, mm-hmm. when they arrived and the bear was still there. So certainly that can lead to more speculation. But again, at this time, I'd, I'd, I'd rather wait to, to get a report from the experts so that the family has some peace. And that friend you were mentioning survived. We should, we should underline it, yes, in that case, I see yes. he did. He did survive, and he was really fortunate because of the location, you know. And that's a, that's a piece here too. Is you know, when when people are in more front country settings, that you know, there can often be more access to to getting emergency services. But in mm-hmm. in back country settings, uh, such as this particular attack, uh, you know, we're going numerous hours before anyone can get in. And I think that's something people need to realize when they head out into bear country is that, you know, you really do need a communication device and uh, you need to have a first aid kit, tourniquets, know how to use them and uh, know how to do wilderness first aid uh, until, uh, you know, the proper emergency medical services can can get to you. The other aspect of this case, you know, we often hear it it is very rare for bears to, to attack. So when they do attack humans, what are the potential causes? Is it, is it because they're surprised or, or hungry? Mm -hmm. No, uh, great question. You know, we have a few bear attacks a year with both black bears and grizzly bears, and and usually one, maybe two fatalities a year with those species. And uh, and you think about the hundreds of millions of people in North America, it, you know, it is statistically quite quite still rare. It doesn't feel like that when you know there's there's so many articles coming out, you know, today and yesterday and over the coming days. It feels like there's a lot of a lot of attacks out there when when there really aren't. Uh, when it comes to grizzly bears, majority of attacks are are actually defensive. So a, a recent study looked at attacks by grizzly bears around the world, and they found that 95% of those attacks were, in fact, defensive. And a defensive attack is when you surprise the bear at close range, or it has cubs with it, or it has a food source, such as a carcass that it's feeding on, or garbage, and they, they get defensive of those things. They're like, hey, get away from my babies, or my food, or me, like, I didn't hear you coming, so they think you're trying to attack them. And that's why we tell people to make so much noise and travel in large groups, so that, you know, if you do come across a bear, they, they, they've heard you coming, and they know you're not trying to hurt them, and they know that you're not a food source because you're not quiet walking in the bush. Now, there is, of course, the other type of attack, which is much more rare when it comes to grizzly bears, uh, which is only 5% of, of those attacks. And that, that's a predatory one. And, and that's when, you know, we're, we could be dealing with a bear that misidentifies people as a food source. You know, there are a lot of 
backcountry settings here in Canada and the U.S. where bears have little to no experience with people. They may not know what we are. Um, there are bears that are getting, you know, they get into people food, people that might have been camping in the area before that, have left food inside their tent. Bear starts associating people with food and then as food. That can certainly play a role. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's also those the, those cases where the bear is injured, malnourished, they're el- or they're elderly, uh, they're starving to death, they're injured, and um, they're just trying to survive. And they come across people and they go, this is my only option. If I don't do this, I'm not going to make it, uh, you know, through winter. So there's a whole variety of reasons why we see that type of attack. And, and that's some, you know, these are some of the things that they'll be doing as they do the investigation. They'll look at the health of the bear. They'll look at their teeth. They'll look for disease, injury, uh, the weight of the animal. Um, and, of course, you know, injuries to the people as well will help them determine uh, what type of attack it was. How is the family holding up? You know, I only know my my friend who called me, and uh, I, I don't know the immediate family around them. But you, as you can imagine, it has been um, a horrific and shocking experience. I've had a few calls uh, from people who are survivors of bear attacks. I've, over the years, um, made friends with, with people who have survived attacks and have had taken the time to... To, to, to go through with them and, and answer their questions about why these things happen and help them try to find the courage and confidence to get back into the outdoors. Uh, and it's been a really triggering experience for those people too, because, and they feel, you know, they feel bad because, you know, they survived, but, you know, these people didn't and they feel horrified for their families and, and want to support them as well. So uh, just our, my thoughts go out to, to the family and friends and, of course, the first responders who did everything they could to try to save these people's lives. Kim, thank you. Welcome. Kim Titchener is the founder of Bear Safety and More. She's in Edmonton, Alberta. We've all been there. You set out to do something nice and somewhere along the way it goes terribly wrong. And when you try to fix it, it just gets worse. Cecilia Jimenez knows what I'm talking about. 11 years ago, the 81-year-old from Borja, Spain, tried to restore a fresco of the face of Jesus in a local church. But instead of making it better, she made it weird and rendered it virtually unrecognizable. The botched painting became known internationally as Monkey Christ for reasons you know if you've seen it and you can guess at if you haven't. The work sparked worldwide ridicule, but not from Andrew Flack. He's one of the writers behind Behold the Man, a comic opera that tells Ms. Jimenez's story. The opera had its world premiere this weekend in Las Vegas, and that is where we reached Mr. Flack. Andrew, how'd the show go over? Was it better than the initial reaction to the fresco itself? It was a sensation, I have to say. Some members so, of, of the Jimenez family were, were in the audience. What did they think? Yes, they loved it. Uh, uh, Cecilia's niece was here, mm-hmm. uh, and that would, would be Marissa Ibanez. She's just been a 10-year pen pal and correspondent with me. She's the liaison between me and her, her aunt uh, Cecilia. And uh, she's just been so supportive since really day one. We first met in... Uh, 2015 in in Borja, uh, my wife and I, who's the producer of the show here, we've been to Spain five times to be with these folks. You build this, Andrew, as a comic opera, but how do you do that without making fun of her directly? 
Well, exactly. Um, you know, I, I say people talk about the, either the, the, the ridiculous or the sublime. Well, the ridiculous aspects of what happened, right? The, the things that actually transpired in the story are ridiculous. But Cecilia had a sub, has, and she's still living at 92, but at the time she had a sublime response to it, really. And it was her faith, and it was her belief that that she would come through this and that god would help her come through it and and, you know halfway through she's not exactly sure because she's made this mistake and she feels maybe like she's been abandoned but it turns out so well that she at the end everybody she and everyone else realizes it's it's a kind of miracle (laughs) that there was the the resulting tourism brought all this financial uh interest back to the town so it 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 really brought the 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 town back to life so the sublime response is is to the hate and the backlash she got. Is that what you mean? Not to it's exactly the right. painting That's itself. Exactly right. All right. Yes. Well, and it's, it's about her forgiveness of her, of her neighbors who were kind of really mean to her. Well, let's go back when in time. When, yeah. when we all mm-hmm. heard about this, it, the image came right yes. across the headlines. It did. And it was, it's, it's an awful restoration. Uh, <laughs> and, and heartbreaking. What do you think about it at that moment? It struck a chord and, you know, led to so much hate and humiliation. Yes, and I also recognized in the woman's distress, I, when I saw her photograph, it, she was in anguish. And I could tell she wasn't a, a, a villain. She wasn't uh, a fool. She wasn't finished with the, with the restoration. She had done the work to kind of stabilize the, the painting. And then she was going to go back and finish her work. And she went on vacation. And if you're ever started a painting and you're you're not finished, don't go on vacation. That's kind of the yeah. the, the Well is she trained the, in restoration? <laughs> no, not at all. So. She's an no, she's an amateur artist. Yeah. Um but this this fresco was uncared for and it was really nobody cared about this thing. And and uh you know, it's a little it's only maybe, you know, uh twenty four inches by six you know, twenty four inches by sixteen inches. It's not a large mm-hmm. piece and it's by no means a masterpiece. So people didn't care about this thing yeah. until it, what happened happened. And what made you sympathize with her in the first place and, and want to reach out? Um, when I saw her face in the, in the New York Times, I just my heart went out to her. And I have a friend who's a composer, and he'd been looking for an idea for a comic opera. And um, when I saw this, I thought, wow. And then very soon after, I could see there was going to be a silver lining because this the generated all this publicity and all of this tourism and this this little town of Borja isn't easy to get to it's a it's a hike for anybody and and within you know i think within 6 months people from all seven continents had had descended on this tiny little town in Aragon this was the the big premiere but you had a staging of it a few years back right in in yes, Borja yes you did yes and how did that go well over? we had a concert in in Borja in 2016 and there were they set up set, uh, 400 chairs outside on the plaza next to the church where the Eche Homo is is inside and they did an hours long concert and the 400 chairs 700 people attended and 300 had to stand <laughs> and it was just amazing. I mean, every every little step we've had just a miraculous response to this. How is Cecilia Jimenez doing now? She's she's physically well. Yeah. Uh, I do think she has some uh, dementia type thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but her she has a son who's still living. They live together, yeah. uh, and she lives in in the retirement community there in Borja and is taken care of beautifully. Wow. And the fresco is as she left it. In that Absolutely. early state when she went on vacation, the unfinished state. 
No one has thought to improve it or change it. No, no, they thought about doing it, but but there would be as an outcry because people wanted to see it as as she had left (laughs) it. They have put a plexiglass shield over it like they might do with the Mona Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) You know, is that the takeaway then? The worst thing that happens to you in your life might end up being the best. Well, it could be that. Yes, I do think that's it. And I think you have to sit with it. And I think you have to hope for the best. And, you know, as, as the one of the last lines in the play is, um, you know, one man's miracle need not be another man's disaster. Andrew, thank you. I've enjoyed it. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Andrew Flack is a co-writer of the comic opera Behold the Man. He reached him in Las Vegas. Five years ago today, dissident journalist and Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi walked into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul. He never walked out. At first, his disappearance was a mystery, but the full and gruesome details of his death and dismemberment quickly became clear, as did the involvement of Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. But five years later, justice remains elusive, and Saudi Arabia is far from the pariah that many Western governments promised it would become. Sarah Lee Whitson is the executive director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, an organization founded by Jamal Khashoggi. We reached her in Santa Monica. Sarah Lee, there have been fist bumps with the U.S. president, a planned visit to the United Kingdom. What do you make of the relationship the Western world has with Saudi Arabia and its crown prince five years after Jamal Khashoggi's murder? Well, I think that the United States and other Western governments have clearly chosen to prioritize their perceived economic interests and the economic advantages of close ties to Mohammed bin Salman at the expense of values, at the expense of principles, and most significantly at the expense of the security and safety uh, of people in the United States and people in the United Kingdom, uh, among others. Is this where you thought we would be five years on? Uh, No, it's certainly not, particularly based on the global reaction of revulsion uh, that led dozens of governments to sanction the many, if not most, uh, of the Saudi individuals involved, uh, uh, as well as to suspend arms transfers to Saudi Arabia. Uh, President Biden uh, campaigned on the promise uh, to recalibrate relations with Saudi Arabia um, and to make them the pariah that they are. Uh, he promised to end arms sales to Saudi Arabia. And so I think many po- people believe that there would finally be a moment of understanding um, that continuing to support the Saudi government uh, and its reckless sociopathic dictator um, was a danger, not just to the people of Saudi Arabia, not just to the people of Yemen, but to the people in our own countries as well. Um, So we expected that they would finally uh, uh, act. What changed and when? Well, I think the Biden administration faced a lot of pushback when it tried to recalibrate uh, its relationship with Saudi Arabia, including uh, the Saudi regime uh, acting to cut oil output and increase oil prices. Um, 
I think that uh, ultimately the influence of Saudi Arabia uh, within our political system and the influence of the defense industry, uh, who profits from continued arms sales to uh, the country that is the largest purchaser of American weapons in the world, um, was simply uh, uh, too much for the Biden administration to tolerate. You are calling on U.S. members of Congress to pass two pieces of legislation, the Khashoggi Act and the Khashoggi Resolution. What would those achieve? What would they change? These are two very important pieces of legislation, um, which uh, really heartens me to see members of Congress reaffirming their commitment uh, to sanctioning wrongdoers uh, and protecting uh, people in the United States. Um, The Khashoggi Act would codify the Khashoggi ban that the Biden administration unveiled, um, which is effectively a visa ban uh, that the State Department uh, issues for perpetrators of extraterritorial repression uh, around the world. By codifying it, it makes it a law that no subsequent administration can undo. Um, uh, And significantly, uh, it uh, amends the Foreign Sovereign Immunities Act to take away uh, the ability of a government to claim sovereign immunity and exemption from jurisdiction in U.S. courts in cases of uh, murder and serious injury against a U.S. resident. And so that would allow uh, um, people, organizations, to bring lawsuits for acts like the murder of Jamal Khashoggi in a U.S. court. In a news release today on this anniversary, you are drawing a direct line from the murder of Jamal Khashoggi to the recent allegations made by the Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, that agents of the Indian government carried out a murder against an activist here in Canada. You draw that direct line. Why? I mean, the, I think we have to connect the dots. Um, as our political leaders, as Justin Trudeau, uh, as Secretary Blinken in the United States, have repeatedly told us that if we don't hold perpetrators accountable, impunity will be the rule of the day and dictators will copy each other. Uh, and that's exactly what's happened. Um, uh, the Indian government saw that there was no punishment of Mohammed bin Salman. And so uh, I think uh, Prime Minister Modi made the same calculation in India that they could kill their perceived opponents. And they can count on Canada and other Western governments to do nothing in the face of this. And if you note the relative silence of the United States and the uh, United Kingdom in the face of Justin Trudeau's allegations, um, you can see why Modi thought he could uh, get away with it. The Indian government, as you know, calls these allegations absurd, rejects them. I wanted to speak about the legal cases at play here. Back in 2020, you filed a joint lawsuit in a Washington district court against the Saudi crown prince, MBS, and 28 other top Saudi officials. What is the status of that lawsuit? Um, That lawsuit was uh, dismissed um, because the Biden administration intervened to say that they recognized uh, the sovereign immunity of Mohammed bin Salman as a head of state. Uh, in Saudi Arabia. And this is something that even the Trump administration hadn't done. Um, But um, obviously something that Mohammed bin Salman was demanding of the Biden administration and the Biden administration uh, conceded. They capitulated to the Saudi regime and intervened in our lawsuit uh, to make a suggestion of immunity that the judge was pretty much obliged to follow. What do you think might actually change the way Western countries deal with Saudi Arabia? What will it take to change that relationship? 
I think fundamentally, um, uh, Western political leaders need to recalculate and recalibrate uh, how they will win the global contest for ideas, um, to understand that it is our values, it is our democracies, and it is our freedoms that ultimately is the competitive advantage we have against governments like China and Russia. Um, if we sacrifice our values and our democracy and our freedoms as our political leaders are doing, we will have no competitive advantage and we will not win um, that contest and that rivalry with authoritarian regimes around the world. How are you remembering Jamal Khashoggi five years on? I am remembering Jamal Khashoggi with sadness, of course, but also with great pride and joy um, that our organization uh, continues to amplify his voice and his vision with hundreds and thousands of people echoing Jamal's calls for democracy and freedom um, with our advocacy for the principles that Jamal believed in standing stronger today um, than we ever have before. Sarah Lee, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Sarah Lee Whitson is the executive director of Democracy for the Arab World Now, which was founded by Jamal Khashoggi and his fiancée, Hatija Jengiz. Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm brave enough to say it. Certain things that come in pairs are creepy, like the Grady twins in The Shining, or doll's eyes, or tiny, free-floating, planet-like enigmas orbiting two by two far out in space. What are they doing out there, and why don't they quit it? So far, scientists don't really know. They're calling them jumbos, or Jupiter mass binary objects. They were observed over a thousand light years from Earth in the Orion Nebula by the James Webb Space Telescope. Mark McCorkran is a senior advisor for science and exploration at the European Space Agency and part of the team that first observed the jumbos. We reached him in Vassenaar, the Netherlands. Mark, I disagree with, with Chris. I think they're kind of beautiful, but describe for our listeners what these jumbos look like. Well, in some ways, the word jumbo is a bit misleading because mm -hmm. they're, they're the smallest things which we found in the Orion Nebula. Orion is the nearest place where massive stars are forming uh, to the sun. But it not only has the very big bright stars in the middle which light up the nebula, it has lots and lots of normal stars, a bit like the sun. Um, things we call brown dwarfs, which are failed stars. And then right at the bottom end, the smallest things, only a few times the mass of Jupiter, we see the we see a few of them floating around, but actually now what we've seen with James Webb Space Telescope is hundreds of them, and most remarkably that about 40 of them, or that there are 40 pairs of them, so around 80 of them, are hanging out together in this amazing region about 1,300 light years away from Earth. And as they hang out, what do you know at this stage about what they're doing? Well, the, the first thing that's important about them is they're very young. They're only about a million years old, and that's actually why we can see them, because... 
the energy they had as they were collapsing down and forming in the first place they're still giving away that heat so that makes them about a thousand a thousand kelvin a thousand uh, um, celsius roughly um and that means that they're warm enough that we can see them in the future they'll cool down we won't be able to see them at all now the real question is did they form this way as these pairs as binaries as we call them in astronomy did they form that way um out of the molecular gas and dust that stars form out of or were they actually formed as regular planets going around young stars and then got kicked out into the nebula by some kind of violent interaction mm. and the real question is is how do we see pairs of them then how would they stay stuck together if they got kicked out of uh, this the places where planets normally form in describing how rare all of this is your colleague sam pearson uh, gave quite a quote to the new york times uh, saying quote it's like kicking a cup of tea across a room and having all the tea land in the teacup and then doing that 42 times. I know you two have been having a quote off. That's what I hear anyway. So do you have a quote <laughs> yeah, a to, to rival that description? Yes. Well, I mean, you know, one of the real questions people ask about these things is, you know, what is a planet and what's not a planet? Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things is, should a planet actually have to be in orbit around the star? My way of thinking about this, my cat is a chihuahua mass object, just happens to be a cat, not a dog. But um, <laughs> so, you know, at some level, it's, it's a matter of nomenclature. And we don't know at the moment how they were formed. So we don't really know what to call them. How does it all change our understanding of what's going on out there? Well, one of the things I wanted to do from 20 years ago, mm -hmm. in fact, 25 years ago when I got involved, was find the very smallest things that a region like Orion could produce. So when we saw these things, which were maybe five or six times smaller than we'd ever seen before, it was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. But if you actually look at the physics, they're almost impossible to make. It just happens to do with the temperature of the gas and the dust they're born out of. So firstly, that's the big challenge. How do you even make things this small, one times the mass of Jupiter, but floating freely, not attached to a star. And now we find pairs of them. Um, well, I've got colleagues here. One colleague wrote me an email today, and he works in the in what's called exoplanets, planets going mm -hmm. around other stars. And this is the most important result in 10 years. Um, now, that's for him to say, not for me. Um, of course, I can repeat it. But So I think you know, there are lots <laughs> of people scratching their heads and wondering, you know, what does this actually mean now? Because the, the, we're seeing way more of these objects than we expected. Um, and the fact they're in pairs was totally unexpected. So I think, you know, um, I'm an observer. I look for things. I take pictures of things and I try to do science. Now it's for the theoreticians to come up with the papers. And who knows, maybe the first paper will be published tomorrow. We'll find out. Oh, OK. What are the next questions you're going to be asking as you continue your part of the research? So one of the things that's really important is at the moment we would we would call them candidates. We, we do have some measure of what their atmospheres look like. We've used lots of um, different kind of um, colored filters in the James Webb Space Telescope to isolate water in the atmosphere of the planet. Uh, this is steam because it's very hot, so it's not, it's not liquid water. And there's also methane in the atmospheres of these planets. And these are big signs that these are fairly small objects, fairly cool. But to really nail that down now, we need to spread the light out into a spectrum. We need to uh, kind of make a rainbow out of it. And then we'll be able to um, get the parameters much more accurately. And we'll be doing that in March. So we'll be going back with the James Webb Space Telescope. We already booked the time, so we, we knew we needed to do this. We just didn't know what we needed to look at. Hopefully, most of them will turn out to be real. Some probably won't. That's how it goes. Mm. But then we might even find some very interesting things in the spectra as well, unexpected things. Take me to that moment when you first saw these images. As I said, to my eye, they're, they're beautiful. Chris is terrified by them. But <laughs> what did you say and feel in that moment? Well... 
I've been taking pictures of the Orion Nebula all the way through my career as an astronomer. So it was one of the first things we pointed the very first infrared cameras at in the mid-1980s. Um, and of course, over the years, the technology's got better and better. We've got sharper and sharper pictures. But this is just now more than 20 times sharper than the images I took when I was a PhD student uh, all those decades ago. And, and to see that and then, you know, think back to how it was then, just, you know, crazy. We, we dreamed we could do this. We dreamed we could build this amazing machine between North America and Europe. And we have. And it works amazingly well. But to see the binaries, that was just kind of a whole other thing. It's like, oh, no, well, hold on. You've made a mistake. <laughs> You've done something wrong. You've registered the images badly, and there's, dou there's double for everything. And Sam just looked at me patiently and said, no, no, I've checked everything. And so it, it, was a, it was a good moment. Are you surprised to be surprised when you're looking up there at, at this stage? You know what? It's something I live for, actually. And, and it's happened oh, probably not two handfuls of times in my whole career where you point a telescope at a place in the sky and discover something new. And for just that brief moment, because we're always keen to share these things, you're the only person that's ever seen that particular object in space. And it's a, it's a real buzz. I mean, it goes <laughs> yeah. beyond the science. It's a real human thing to sort of think, just for this moment, I'm the only one. Now, in this case, Sam, Sam had that, you know, because he spotted the binaries. Um, I was the kind of the doubter and said, no, that can't be true. No, 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 no. Come on. You've got to prove it. Um, and, but now I believe them. They're amazing. Mark, thank you. My pleasure. I'm not terrified. I'm just slightly unsettled. Mark McCorquin is a senior advisor for science and exploration at the European Space Agency. He's in Vossenaar, the Netherlands. California teenager made soccer history yesterday just by stepping onto the pitch. The moment marked Davian Kimbrough's professional debut, which is a big deal for a player of any age. But for Mr. Kimbrough, it's record-breaking. The forward for the Sacramento Republic is 13 years and 7 months old, making him the youngest player in North America to ever go pro. Mr. Kimbrough's history-making debut is our sound of the day. A monumental moment, not only for Republic, or really for all of soccer, but all American sports. 13-year-old Damian Kimbrough making his professional debut, the youngest ever to step between the lines. And Adam, he does it right here in his hometown of Sacramento, California. Yeah, 13 years, 7 months, and 13 days young. Damian Kimbrough does something that so many aspiring players never get to do. And that's make a professional debut. Incredible. And that's a name to keep out for. Davian Kimbrough. Fans pulling out their phones. We've got goosebumps here. What a moment for this youngster. California 13-year-old Davian Kimbrough making his pro soccer debut. That was our sound of the day. Hundreds of renters in Toronto are hitting their landlords where it hurts. 
On the weekend, tenants in two large apartment buildings joined a growing rent strike. They say their investment company landlord has neglected cleaning and maintenance and that their units are infested with bedbugs and cockroaches. On top of that, they say the company is trying to raise their rents more than the provincial guidelines allow. Maria Diaz is one of the tenants who's refusing to pay. We reached her in Toronto. Maria, can you give us a sense of what it is like to live in your building? And we should mention you have a new baby as well. Yes, I do. Um, She's turning three months actually this Mm -hmm. week. Um, And just living in this building with um, a newborn and another child of mine, um, he's seven, turning eight. And it's just very concerning that this is the standard of living, I suppose, that they're seeing. It's very sad that um, you know, with the pest situation, with the lack of cleanliness in the hallways, elevators mal- malfunctioning all the time, it's kind of sad to see that, you know, they're kind of raised without choice. Take us through the doors, what it's like in the hallways and your apartment unit itself. Of course. Um, well, if you're entering through the front door, if you're lucky enough to get one of the elevators, and we have three of them to work, <laughs> hopefully it comes within the next five minutes. But you would just uh, notice the roof um, has like a lot of water damage if you go through any of the hallways um, to access uh, the wa- uh, the garbage chutes or even the laundry room. Um, there's a lot of stench and um, just mold built up and um just mildew. That's not pleasant to see in the carpets. And then, unfortunately, our unit is one of those that has been hit with bed bugs, along with other minor fixes that the landlord just does not choose to fix, even though I request uh, multiple times. Um, they also don't seem to care about the, the pest issues that everybody has, cockroaches, um, bed bugs, um, you know, the uncleanliness, and sometimes even like uh, walls collapsing. Um, in my particular hallway, there's a wall that has had water damage and it's just peeling off. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have to walk through that every single day. You mentioned the smell. What does it smell like? I can't even describe. I mean, if you've ever smelled like well, wet mildew um, mm-hmm. in our building, I, I feel like it's very undescribable. Yeah. <laughs> like if you walk through certain hallways, unfortunately, um, it's just very strong. It's like bitter it's sour it's all the things that you just don't want to have like you know at 8 a.m in the morning walking your kids to school or going to work um especially with a newborn it's just not something pleasant that i wish on anybody how much are you paying for rent uh in my particular unit we're close to two thousand um and it got even closer to after the um increase of rent that the landlord was uh asking everybody to to be basically agreeing on so two thousand dollars a month and then you got that letter and when did you get yeah. that letter? And what did you think? Because these conditions obviously are not pleasant for you. Uh, and then you saw the rent increase. Of course. Yeah, no, we are already paying 2000 And, you know, the living conditions that we're at, and especially with the building and the rest of, you know, the corridors and everybody else sharing their same concerns, to have seen that letter um, about three months ago to say that they were increasing it by 3.56%, which is above the provincial allowed guideline. Um, I was like, okay, well, why? Well, this is a joke. Because why are they asking us an absurd increase to, to our rent that we are paying when they're not even taking care of um, basic accommodation as of right now? And the rent is already high. Why would they want to increase it more? So I was, me, myself, I was very, very upset. How are they able to, to, to send you a letter saying that when there is a strict yearly guideline in Ontario, what have they told you about how they feel they can do that? Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't specifically because I had asked them via email um, you know, the provincial guideline is 2.5 and they had mentioned something about, you know, we put in this through like a board of landlords uh, through the province or whatnot. Um, I'm not a landlord myself, but I'm guessing they would need to have that approved. But I don't know how they could even. Usually, yes. Yeah, I don't know how they would even want to have that approved, like at least go for the 2.5 because I get it. Everybody has to fight inflation, including landlords. But 
there's a reason why we as residents are protected with a 2.5 and you can't just increase the rent with however number or figure that you want. And apart from that notice, you received another notice, this one on your building from Canada Post. What did that say? Um, it basically said it was a nice orange, big, bold <laughs> paper. At the, uh, you, couldn't, you couldn't miss it, but it just basically said that the conditions of the building um, are to the point of uncleanliness and unsafety that uh, they're not going to be putting their courier delivery <clears throat> personnel through having to come to the building and deliver because of the pest infestations that they had. When did you decide that a rent strike was the way to go here? Well, I was thinking for a while, like, to move because precisely even a year ago, we've been here for about a year and a half and, you know, the conditions have been here since we moved in. Um, so then I heard um, about the rent strike events that they were happening in the little uh, yard area in our building. When I found out that everybody was in on this or majority of folks were in on not you know, on not continuing to pay rent um, <laughs> to somebody who's already not doing, you know, their due diligence of making hygiene, safety, and health to the residents available. Meanwhile, they're asking for more. Um, I figured that, you know, if this was me by myself, this would be an issue that I'd be afraid of. But because we are in a community that does not want to continue this problem that we're living in, um, I figured joining the fight would be the best mm-hmm. way to go. And it shows it showcases the rest of the city and hopefully the province um, that, you know, rent is something that we all have to live with, but that doesn't mean that you have to abuse of it from your residents. The strike now, uh, multiple buildings in Toronto involved, more than 500 tenants are taking part in this. What's your sense at at this stage about whether you'll win? I'm hoping that because we do stand stronger together, um, we are unified as a community if we stand alongside each other. Um, standing together as a community uh, hopefully will get us an agreement mm-hmm. and for them to realize, okay, well, we are only allowed the 2.5%, so let's de- decrease it back to the 25 not this random figure that we want to throw out just because residents mm-hmm. have no choice. That's what the landlord thinks. But no, standing together will m- put the message across, and multiple other workplaces have um, done strike, and it has worked before. Are you worried at all about, you know, what damage may be done to you if you continue to to withhold rent, whether it's credit score or those kinds of things, are you concerned about the potential impact on you and your family? Um, it's definitely a concern that I would have if I were doing the, this by myself. Uh, it's not like we're living here for free. We are withholding rent until an agreement is um, come across from all parties. Uh, so we are still, as a responsible resident, we are still collecting the rent of every month to eventually pay it back. So it's not like the landlord is financially suffering. They're suffering at the moment, but they will be getting their money mm-hmm. But in terms of retaliation or in terms of, you know, credit score, like you had mentioned, I'm not concerned because if I think it's just way more criminal for somebody in power that is receiving money from somebody else to not even do their basic diligence of, you know, basic hygiene, health and safety, like I I was mentioning before, um, just because you're giving me a roof on the top of my head doesn't mean that it has to be crumbling down, especially if you do have the funds to be able to fix it, for example. Maria, thank you for your time. Of course. No, thanks for having me. We reached Maria Diaz in Toronto, and we contacted the company that owns the buildings, but we did not receive a response. A typical item in the Marion County Records police blotter goes like this. A dog running free in the 800 block of West Grand Avenue was returned to its owner. 
or police met with juveniles trespassing at the county fairgrounds. But this week, at least one story in the Kansas Weekly will be a lot more substantive. Something like, police chief suspended after raiding home of this newspaper's publisher. Last month, the record was subjected to a police raid. The homes of the publisher and a city councilor were also searched. The paper says the raid was in retaliation for its investigation into the now-suspended police chief. Eric Meyer is the owner, publisher, and editor of the Marion County Record. We reached him in Marion, Kansas. Eric, what did you think when the news of the chief's suspension came down? Well, I would say relief, except I, it was more about time. You know, we've been expecting this for a long time. Uh, police officers typically are suspended with pay. We don't even know yet whether it was with or without pay. Uh but they typically are pending the outcome of an investigation, not waiting until the end of the investigation before it comes up. If we go back to the summer and the raid, uh, I was watching a video just a few moments ago. Your 98-year-old mother was in it, and I know you've lost her since then, so I'm very sorry for your loss, and, and you can share as Thank much you. as you feel comfortable with. She is certainly not shy about uh, telling no. the police who've come into the home and trying to, to look at uh, computers and maybe seize them, how she feels. She was also a co-owner uh, of the paper. What did she tell you about the stress of that moment? Well, she repeatedly was muttering the rest of the evening and into the next morning, where are all the good people that allowed something like this mm -hmm. to happen? She also was saying, this will be the death of me, which mm -hmm. was rather prophetic. She was mostly concerned that, you know, how can something like this happen? She'd worked for the paper for 60 years, basically. She was still working for it. She, oh, wow. She worked every week. Uh, past year, I had read her some of the stuff she she would produce because she was having a little trouble with her eyesight. But up until a year ago, she was, you know, working an eight-hour shift on Saturdays and putting together a column for us every week. Till she was 97. Uh, yeah. She was 97, and... and she was a very careful writer, and, and no one here other than me would dare edit her work. <laughs> but uh, uh, she she was very involved. She was very involved in the community. She'd lived here her entire life uh, and uh, and just couldn't understand how someone would do something like this. What did you say to your mother when she, when she said those things to you? How do you explain I, I, it? I tried, to com I tried to comfort her by saying, you know, sometimes when you're dealing with bullies, and frankly, that's what I think we're dealing with here, uh, they go one step too far. You know, they they got by stealing your lunch money for a while, but, but they do one thing too many, and they finally get their comeuppance. And I said, out of all this may come something good. You know, I'm, I'm not really the Pollyanna-ish type that wants to say things like that, but I thought it might cheer her up. Her response was, yeah, it may, but I won't be alive to see it. What do you make, though, of the fact that the chief was able to get a warrant for this? Well, best I can figure, this was like a an episode of the old TV show MASH where Radar O'Reilly presents <laughs> Colonel Blake with a bunch of papers to sign, and he just signs them, and you don't know what they are. Uh we're only now learning that the county attorney may have had more information about this than he has let on and could maybe have stopped it earlier on. That's a breaking story that we're just now discovering. What do you think is the good that can come out of this? The good that can come out is people need to understand that government belongs to them and that they don't belong to government. 
that it is fine to question authority. And if you do, and we weren't questioning authority as much as we were just reporting the news. And, and that in and of itself is a, is a you know, speaking truth to power and all of the rest of the, the cliches that go on about journalism. That if you do that and you get swatted down, there will be people there to help you up. We've been just overwhelmed with support that we've received uh, from all over the world, literally. Uh, we have new subscribers everywhere. We, oh, wow. our, our circulation has doubled, basically, uh, as people contribute to us. And the, the words of support coming in are are 100% supportive. So it sounds like people it, are, you know, if, if there is a bright spot, people are recognizing the importance of the journalism you do. And I think that's good. I mean, we've all heard recently about how it's been a bad time for journalism, uh, particularly newspapers. Uh, I have personally always thought that's a little overrated, that it isn't that bad. There still are people interested. They, Everybody hasn't gone into a social media cocoon and an echo chamber of, of you know, late-night cable shows where they have talking heads yelling things at each other. Uh I think there still is a, an important need for unbiased journalism, the neutral journalism that, that looks at the facts and challenges conventional wisdom, that speaks for the people who don't have a voice. I wonder, you know, the, all the new subscribers and the support aside, are, are you and your colleagues and your team tired of, of being in the spotlight and being involved in the big story? You know, do you just want to cover the rest of what's going on? <laughs> We like to have more time to just do our job, yeah, because uh, we're missing we're missing other news stories because we just don't have time to go after them. And there's plenty of news out there, plenty of good news, plenty of positive news, plenty of news that's that's probably more interesting to people than than our plight is. Uh, but we're trying to keep up with that as well. So. The few of us that are left, because we've lost a staffer because she's too stressed out to work under these conditions, and another one has had some health complications because of her stress. So, how big is your team? We're well, depending on how you count full time and part time, we have anywhere from two full time reporters to thirteen total staffers, okay. uh, including part timers and stringers and stuff like that. Well, Eric, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much. Eric Meyer is the owner, publisher, and editor of the Marion County Record. We reached him in Marion, Kansas. Whether you're a sprinter or something is chasing you, a bit of extra speed is definitely welcome. But at some point, you reach your speed limit. If you're trying to improve your time, that's frustrating. And if you're running away from a creature you're pretty sure is a werewolf, it can be downright worrying. Well, now a new device might help you survive being pursued by a bloodthirsty monster you thought was mythical or help you to cross the finish line a bit earlier. A team from Chung'ang University in South Korea has invented a robotic exoskeleton that, according to one researcher, can augment the human ability to run. I know what you're thinking. You don't want to climb into a clunky metal suit before you hit the track or scramble through the forest in terror of being seized by the razor-sharp talons of a drooling werewolf. Well, good news. This exosuit is small and lightweight. 
There are little motors in it which are attached to steel cables which are attached to your thighs. When you run, the motors pull the cables. The researchers found that their suit actually increased the number of steps runners took, which sped up their sprinting. So if you're trying to register a new personal best, or if a werewolf startled you while you were loading your pistol with silver bullets, so you had to bolt for the woods, and now you can feel its breath on your neck as you struggle to outrun it under the full moon, this might be the solution. Because it's either wear the exosuit or wear wolf. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksell. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.